Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we welcome special guest and Canadian ambassador to the United Nations, the Honourable Bob Ray to the program. Mr. Ray joins host Pamela Ritchie for a wide-ranging conversation on the impacts of war, today's energy crises and climate change. Mr. Ray was elected 11 times to federal and provincial parliaments and served as the Premier of Ontario. He provides his insights on the role Canada plays on the economic stage and how today's current issues of trade, food production and immigration all affect our economy. The former Premier of Ontario offers tools and strategies needed to further support Ukraine. He also discusses the current situation in Iran and how Canada should continue to draw global attention to the uprising in the Middle Eastern country. Today's podcast was recorded on October 18, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses and commissions are all associated with fund investments. I wonder if we start with a few glimmers of hope, maybe. I don't know how long-term they are, but on the grain front, there has been sort of movement. There's been a window. Turkey helped to broker overall grain shipments moving in and out of some of the ports there. Is this something that we can take some hope from, at least from temporarily? Well, I think it's one of the real successes of the Secretary General of the UN, who was uh, key in negotiating the ability of Ukraine to get its grain out. But also that agreement is now, it's time limited. It's being renegotiated now. And there's also the issue of Russia being able to get some of its fertilizer out, which is very important, not only for this year, but also for next year. Right now, I think most of the experts that I that I talk to and meet with from the World Food Program, from the humanitarian agencies of the UN, is that there's an issue, obviously, of food price, which is a serious problem because if prices get too high for a great many people, then they, it affects their ability to, to feed themselves. And, and so there's, there's the question of access to food right now. But globally, I think the fear, the much greater fear is in the, in the next year that we'll face actual food shortages. There will not actually be enough food being grown around the world for a whole variety of factors. The Russian attack on Ukraine is one, but climate change, um, financial issues that flow from the crisis, these things all mix together. So we're, we're, we're in a rough, we're in for a rough ride. There's no question. It's, it's going to be very tough out there for, for 2023. And, and uh, we have to do everything we can to make it better, but we have to understand that we're at the receiving end of a number of cascading crises, the pandemic, climate change, the the effects of, of the financial crisis, these things are all coming together and they're hitting home. And that's the reality that we're facing right now. It's so wonderful to sort of have your perspective to sort of 
guide us through exactly what what it, we are looking at because it does look quite worrying from a number of different fronts. You wonder on on the grain issue if it's one small way that Canada, in fact, can can step up. We obviously are a big contributor to the to the global markets in that way. And we do what we can, but is there more to be done from that perspective? We can talk about military and other things in a minute, but you wonder on sort of the food security, what Canada might offer, again, in some small way. Well, I think there are two things we can do, and and I'm pleased to say that we're actually doing both of them. The first one is doing whatever we can domestically inside Canada to increase food production, Um, and that's being done. Having said that, I know that politicians get blamed for the weather, but actually there's nothing they can do about the weather um, and all of the surrounding issues, but uh, making sure that we're producing as much as possible, that we're able to con- we're able to produce a, a substantial surplus of food that we can then uh, export to other countries and provide to other countries is a critically important part of our government's overall strategy. The second thing is to do whatever we can to put food and food security at the at, at, at the heart of what our foreign assistance programs are doing, enabling other countries to increase their production and their productivity. Given global conditions, there's no reason why we would have a food shortage. There's ample space and place for food production in the world. And through the use of new technologies, we've been able to take become much more productive in, in agricultural production than ever before. But it, it, it it's, a, it's partly about the money. It's also about Making sure that we that we keep our eye focused on on the importance of uh, food production more more widely. So you're going to see with a number of African countries, with many others, you're going to see lots of of opportunities for us to engage very directly with countries about how we can, how Canada can assist in their their getting uh, food to market uh, and making sure it's being done in a way that's that's affordable. So let's go to the issue because it sort of brings up the idea of of the shifting the shifting channels of ch- of trade actually, and that it is shifting. It's been shifting for some time, and we know about some of the really big ones, of course. But how will Canada, perhaps in terms of trade trade deals, look at itself on the world stage differently over the years to come? It may not all happen in the next six months, but in terms of getting goods to markets, other markets, how might that shift? Well, I think one of the things that we can be very proud of as Canadians um, is the fact that we have gone out there very aggressively and signed up to and joined with uh, economic partners in literally every part of the world. We we have a free trade agreement with, uh, with Europe, which is extremely important. It took many years to negotiate. It's still there's still issues there, but we've we've made huge progress on that. We we're we obviously have stronger trade relations now with Mexico and the United States because we had a, a bump there under President Trump where we weren't certain what, this, what, the, what the position of the U.S. was going to be. But that now seems relatively stable for, for the foreseeable future. Uh, we're engaging very hard with Asia, which we see as a, a rapidly growing and increasingly significant area. And we are working now with the Africans and with the African Union to see how we can establish a stronger strategic partnership with Africa. There are within Africa uh, many serious conversations about how to how to really improve the conversation. And with Latin America, it's the same thing. Mercosur could be a great partner, but it partly depends on the, the outward-looking attitude of, of those countries. Canada is, is one of those countries in the world, and frankly, there aren't enough of them, uh, that are really saying, look, 
openness to, to trade uh, and to building stronger economic relationships, not only as it relates to trade, but also as it relates to investment, are, are critically important. We, we believe that that's, that's an important step forward, having fewer barriers and fewer impediments uh, to trade is going to be critically important. But the second part of it is, in addition to having agreements, you then have to say, how do we take advantage of those agreements? And that's really about uh, talking a lot to Canadian producers about how the market is bigger than just the U.S. The market is bigger than our local markets. Our markets extend around the world. Now, supply lines are difficult. Now, there's issues around, you know, how, how much do we uh, go into places and areas that are really difficult for us? But... And that's a good discussion to have, but the reality is we 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 are we are an open trading nation, and we want to encourage all of our economic producers in Canada to think of life that way. Canada, of course, is a resource-based economy, and and the energy crisis has brought that into quite a quite an interesting story right now. We're caught between. The energy crisis, we're also trying to transition to a greener economy generally. Where do you see that right now? I mean, there is tension. Things get put on the back burner. Realistically, what do you think the energy crisis essentially has done to moving towards hitting green targets? Well, you're right. I mean, every country is different. And and we the first thing we have to do is... is uh, accept the reality of, of, of who we are. We are, first of all, we're a huge country with vast distances between uh, between between all of us. Many many parts of the country, by no means fully fully developed, uh, and and we need to recognize the uh, relationship with Indigenous people and the rights of Indigenous people, which have been, I think, clarified by the Supreme Court, strengthened by government policy. And also recognize that we are a significant energy producer, and it, it puts us in a different category than I don't know Belgium or Holland or look at other countries. Going to say, uh, uh, where are we? We're we're one of those countries, in many respects, like Australia and a few others. We're significant, big geographic space, large energy resources, large resources outside energy, um, and that means that our transition to becoming a, a more sustainable economy is going to take its own path. It's going to take a particular path as Canadians. And we we need to understand that the path to sustainability is unavoidable for every country, but that in each country, it's going to take a slightly different course. And I, I think that's, that's understandable. The other thing to recognize is that we are, when it comes to emissions, we are per capita a large emitter, but we are in absolute terms not a large emitter. So we need to put that in perspective by understanding that there's a lot of things that we can do that will actually may hurt our economy very much in the short term that may not have that much of an impact on the global situation. So we, we have to gauge very carefully what we can do, how we can, can do it. Can you give us an example of that? I, I think I know what you mean. but Well, I mean, I think... It's important for us to understand that global warming is a global phenomenon, and and that the the, the country that is now right now in 2022 the largest emitter in the world far and away is China, and there are a number of other rapidly industrializing countries in Asia, particularly I think of India, I think of Indonesia, uh, with situations 
Korea and Japan, which are well-established industrial economies. And we, we really need to be realistic in all of our negotiations and all of our discussions about how do we get those countries to do more? And one of the realities is they won't do more if they see a country like Canada not doing anything. And I think it's interesting that our friends in Australia have actually changed their stance as a result of the recent election in Australia, where they had been very much back of the pack. And now their prime minister says, we want to move our way up the pack. I think Canada has, has clearly embraced all of its international obligations. We have to meet them. And in all of our discussions globally, we have to insist that other countries meet them as well. And I think it's going to take it's, it's going to take a lot of work to do that. But we won't have any international credibility if we don't take the steps necessary to get us moving towards sustainability. Can I ask about the Security Council? Because I I want to make sure I want to sort of ask from your perspective. The role, the UN has always had parts that work well and parts that work less well. And, you know, that's, we're lucky to have it probably. But the Security Council itself, which used to be a very, well, it was just a place for consensus, has obviously been broken down by the invasion uh, of Russia into, into Ukraine. And China is on that as well. I'm, I'm kind of curious for getting messages through, like, you know, even climate change, which is not necessarily a security issue, although there's arguments around that. Is it still the place to go to sort of shape views, the Security Council itself? Tell us how it's changed. Well, this, the good news is we set up the UN in, in 1945, which I think uh, has been unquestionably a, a substantial public good uh, for the world since that time. But the bad news is that nothing is perfect. And in the compromise that was reached in 1945 was that five countries, Russia, the Soviet Union, China, France, UK, and the USA, would be permanent members and as a result would have a veto on the Security Council, which is a very small part of the UN. It's only 1,500. Um, and it, it, it's not all of the UN and it's not all we can do. The short answer to your question is because of that structure, because we have countries now like Russia in particular, which are um, which are using the veto to, to to prevent them from coming under scrutiny or prevent them from stopping doing what they're doing, as in their aggression in Ukraine. It's actually not the place to go unless you can miraculously find uh, a consensus. And I've argued here at the UN that, and, and with my colleagues in Ottawa, I've said, look, we have to find ways to get around the Security Council. Uh, we have to look at other ways we can we can work and we can work more effectively. We can't just sit outside the Security Council and and say, "Gee, you guys aren't doing your job. Isn't that terrible?" We have to figure out well, what are we going to do? What what are the various ways in which we can bring people together to move forward the way they have to? On on climate change, I'm a firm believer that climate change does impact security. I think if you talk to anybody in that region of Africa that crosses all the way from Nigeria right across to, to Somalia, called the Sahel. If you look at that region of Africa, it is a classic example of where climate change is is a direct has a direct impact on security. There's no question about it. And it, and it impacts the immigration and the refugee story massively. It's it's, it's that, a huge people moving. Part we, have of that. Moving, we have more people moving today, um, moving around, moving, displaced, forcibly displaced. Over a hundred million people than we've had since the, the end of the Second World War. In fact, I think since any time, we've never had this number of people. 
So we need to understand that, you know, all of the things that we talked about, climate change, conflict, is impacting the movement of populations. That's a serious issue for the world. It's a serious issue for the world. And I want to ask you about Canada and the importance of immigration to the overall structure of the economy. And it is. I just want to follow up on a couple of questions. So, Ambassador Ray, on Russia, we hear a lot about escalation, including nuclear, but not a whole lot on negotiated peace. Is there an off-ramp for Russia? Is this is this a realistic discussion at this point, in your opinion? We won't have we won't have an agreement until we do. Uh, I, I'm not one of those people who says an agreement will never happen or can't happen. I am one of those people who believes that at some point uh, the parties to a conflict figure out a way to say we can't go on like this. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear that we're there. I, I believe that rather than debate and speculate about uh, about the nuclear issue, which I think really is speculative and not helpful. I think what we have to focus on is the Russian attacks on right now, today, every day on Ukrainian cities and on Ukrainian infrastructure and on the heat and light in in Ukraine and understand that that's what Russia is doing. Russia is trying to demolish the ability of Ukrainians to to have a working, functioning lives and economy and society. And that's a terrible thing. That's bad enough in and of itself. And that's what has to stop. But Russia has suffered tremendous losses on the battlefield, which is why they're resorting now to these to these missile attacks and these drone attacks. Can you tell us about these drone attacks? Because they seem to be drones, some of which coming for, are coming from Iran. We've been watching the street protests in Iran, which have been extraordinary. They've happened before in Iran and not led to significant government change. So it's hard to know exactly where this all fits. But if you could speak to Russia's sort of dwindling group of allies, I don't know how many it had before, but certainly it seems like former Soviet countries, the Caucasus area, have, have really turned. There's been a there's been a change and a shift to those that will actively perhaps not help and be unhelpful to Russia. What do you see there? Well, it's pretty motley crew uh, when you look at it. You look at North Korea. Uh, the, you know, Russia's, Russia can rely on the votes of a very small crew of countries, of, of which Iran is one. And uh, the Iranians are, I mean, it's a terrible government. It's a, a repressive. Uh, they're, they're killing women, young women who are, who've had enough of the repression and the oppression in their society. And they are leading the way in, in, in demonstrating. You, you, you can never tell with a dictatorship how they're usually very brittle places. They're strong until they aren't strong. And at some point, um, you have now, you have young men uh, who are in the in the military or working for the Revolutionary Guards who are killing young women. At some point, those young men are going to say, what the hell am I doing? Why am I doing this? That could be my sister. That could be my mother. And I, I, I don't rule out a way in which things can really change dramatically in Iran. But I what I will say is that Canada will many other countries will be stepping up every conceivable sanction against Iran as targeted as we possibly can make them and doing whatever we can to continue to draw public attention and global attention to to what is wrong with the situation. Canada leads the way now at the United Nations on uh, drafting a resolution about Iran, specifically listing the areas in which human rights are being used. That will be debated. Iran, of course, will reject them. Russia and China and other countries will join up and support Iran. But I, I, I think Canada has has a job to do here. We 
we can't afford, we're not going to stay quiet or silent on the abuse of human rights, whether it's in Xinjiang in China or in, in Iran or anywhere in the world, including, frankly, our own failures in, in the past and in the present. So we we have to stand for some things in the world if we're going to be credible to ourselves. And uh, that's something that I'm very proud that we're able to do that uh, and that I I have the support of my government when we very strongly when we when we say and do the things that we say and do. Tell us a little bit about immigration and and what you see more probably from the refugee side of things in UNHCR and Canada often receives those that have been at a different place on the stopover from wherever they have left. Where do you see policy in Canada welcoming refugees? There's been a big discussion of Ukrainian refugees. What numbers do you, what kind of work needs to be done there? It seems like there's, uh, depends on how you're looking at it, but there's there's um, a lot of things that are undone there. Yeah, I mean, look, Canada alone is not going to solve the, the, this displacement issue that I described. I mean, goes well beyond Ukraine. It's a global, a global issue. But we also have to understand that as a, as a country, from an economic point of view, and immigration is in part an economic issue, um, we have made a very firm decision that we're going to be a country that continues to accept a, relative to our population, a large number of immigrants every year. That number has consistently been over 300,000 in the last several years. And it will continue to be a high number. Now, those those are immigrants that are in the immigration stream. They apply people and their families. They get jobs. It's a program that's done in cooperation with the provinces, and it's it's a it's a, a world class program, frankly, compared to many many other countries. No, very few other countries have anything near our commitment to growing the country uh, as an immigrant country, as a country that accepts. New people, and this is not like turning a tap on and turning it off. This is a steady flow of Canadians every year, a thousand people a day, roughly. If you think of it that term, that's the number of people we're taking in, and that's a big number. When it comes to refugees, it's different. I mean, it's not different, but yes, we're open, and but but it's a separate stream from the immigration stream. So there's never a question of well, I, I can't get my country into Canada as an immigrant because you're taking all the refugees. No, that's also simply not true. We we take in refugees as we can and as we must when people present themselves at our at our on our doorstep. But we also do that in conjunction with UN agencies and others where we have an unprecedented number of people who are in camps and who are in dire need. So we support the people who are in the camps with our foreign assistance and our humanitarian assistance. And we also take in somewhere over 30,000 refugees a year, which is, a, again, relative to the U.S. or anybody else, is a very substantial number. So we can be proud. We can't be complacent. What I've been saying to people is this issue is going to become more serious as time goes on. It's not going to suddenly get better. Particularly with the world and the state that, that it's in right now. I wonder if I can just put a couple of the questions your way. So the, here's one of them. Can Canada take a bigger role in supplying energy to Europe and elsewhere? So just wanted to get your thoughts on, on that. We saw the EU talking about how they've gotten pretty far on their road to reserves so far. Yeah, we, we can. I think we all know the story that We've had trouble as a country over the last 15 years building the pipeline structures for export. 
that would allow us to get natural gas from the West Coast and from the East Coast. I have always been an advocate. When I was in Canadian politics, I uh, was an advocate. When I was working with Indigenous people in Western Canada, I was working with a group of Indigenous communities that very much wanted to support a, a natural gas pipeline. And they that process is... Is, is it going to move at all? I think it will. I think they will move. I think there will be uh, sensible compromises reached that will allow some of that some of that to happen. I I don't think we we can afford not to share our natural wealth with with other countries. But I also think we've you know other things we're doing. For example, uh, we are not only getting off coal ourselves. But we're also encouraging other countries to to get off coal. So the, the the most serious emissions that are most the most intensive emissions with respect to to climate change are the ones that we've decided to target. And I think that's that's a sensible approach for us to for us to take. And and we whether we how we get to 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 2050 isn't going to be by simply deciding that we're going to suddenly and dramatically turn off the tap. We have to do it in a way that's compatible with our, our long-term economic prosperity and our and our long-term sustainability as a as a as a place to live and a place to work. And I think that's the that's the approach we have to take. We're we're not we're not gonna turn this on a dime. You don't turn a ship like like an industrial ship like exists in the world on a dime. You have to yeah. do it in, in a planned way. And I think doing it in a planned way is ultimately gonna be much more effective. It's really wonderful to speak with you. And I, I want to thank you on behalf of everyone joining us here today. Ambassador Ray, thank you. Best of luck and glad that you're keeping the hopes high for everyone. That's great. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Uh, hope is always the, the better alternative, as long as it's based on a, a, a profound sense of reality. But thank you, Pam. Good to talk to you. Good to speak to you as well. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.